if you are a traditional type Lutheran or Episcopalian or Catholic or any of those sorts, uh, the technical time, that the technical name for this day is the first Sunday in Advent, the beginning of the Advent season, what most, most normal people refer to as the Christmas season. But in truth, the Christmas season started long, long ago. At Halloween, just go into any store, and you're quite aware that we've been doing it. And one of the major holidays of the Christmas season just came by, and that was Thanksgiving. Um, and that's Thanksgiving is basically eat yourself to your sick day. Um, and I proceeded to do just that. I was at uh, West Des Moines, and they had a big old spread after the traditional Thanksgiving service, and I did spread. Um, so that was very, very cool, and I'm very grateful for that. I have other things to be grateful as well. Uh, my parents were able to come about a week ago, and not only did we have a great time, but what I'm most grateful for, i got to tell you this, they were only supposed to be like three or four days, but their plane flight didn't work out, so they were there eight days in my little two-bedroom townhome. Well, Benjamin Franklin says that there's two things, fish and guests alike, that after three days they stink. Um, they didn't stink. I am very grateful. They were fantastic house guests. So, I mean, kudos to my parents for that. So, and, and more seriously, one of the things that I think Thanksgiving was initially supposed to be for was celebrating all the good things. I would also say Thanksgiving is a time also to take a sober look at the way things are. And this has been a pretty tough year for a lot of folks. It's been a pretty tough year for life on the outside, life on finances. I know a lot of people I know are still out of jobs, and now they're long-term out of jobs. The people in the real estate market, they may actually call themselves employed, but they know they're not pulling home a paycheck. And if you run your own business, that may be the case as well. Some of you have lost also homes. Uh, it's been pretty tough. Um, and I'm guessing that if I asked you to put your, up your hands, I'd probably see a lot of hands if I asked the simple question, how many of you would like things to be better? And yep, go ahead. Meet, I'm just going to keep my hand up in the air. Yeah, it's been pretty rough. And in fact, I watch a lot of international TV and I've watched Germany and China zoom by us as powerhouse economies. Um, and here we are, even as a country, kind of being left in the dust as everybody kind of goes beyond us as the reception, recession moves from a global recession to just a U.S. one. But there's another side of life way beyond circumstances, way beyond finances, and I would dare say that this side counts even more, although sometimes it's hard to believe it, and that is life on the inside. I think how we approach circumstances sometimes is even more important than the circumstances that come our way. So here's another question, and don't raise your hand at all on this one because this could be kind of personal. How many of you would like to get life better on the inside as well? How many of you would like finally to deal with the hurts, the habits, the hang-ups that you've picked up throughout your lives, the secrets, the regrets, the broken relationships, the addictions, the anxiety, the sadness? How many people would like to get rid of that stuff as well? And I'm guessing the hand... Yep, mm-hmm, amen. Well, that's what I want to address today, is what does it mean for life to get better, not just on the outside, but on the inside as well. But first, I wanted to show you a movie clip uh, from one of my favorite films, and I think it'll get us into the Christmas spirit. So let's go ahead and play that thing. Okay, so that's not as Christmassy as you were expecting. Uh, this is actually from Palm Sunday, but hey, what the heck? Why would I show a clip like this in the middle of Christmas? Because actually, this is what was in the mind of John the Baptist. You just heard the, the Bible lesson just a little before. And John the Baptist is out there preaching away, and he's telling everybody, get ready to meet God's chosen king. 
God's chosen Messiah. And all those hosannas you just heard up there uh, on, in the movie clip, hosanna was actually the thing that every good first century Jew knew was the way you were going to greet the Messiah, yelling, Hosanna, God save us. Literally, that's what it means. And that's what you told the Messiah as he came to conquer and set things right. God save us. Now, what I'd like to do is kind of walk through the front end of that Bible passage we just heard and begin to detail it out just a little bit. It starts out with John the Baptist showing up, and he's dressed really weird. Basically, he's dressed in uh, clothing made out of camel hair, which I hear is not very comfortable. Basically, it's like putting on a burlap sack. Not fun, but that's what he did. And the second thing is his diet was essentially wild honey, which I can get with, but also locusts. I'm not into eating locusts nor grasshoppers, but apparently he was. And this apparently attracted a lot of attention. He was out in the middle of a desert shouting at the top of his lungs, Repent and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, what's all that about? Repent and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is code for the Messiah. When you say the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is near, it says the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. He's near and he's going to change things. He's basically, John the Baptist is basically saying the same thing that the prophet Isaiah said centuries before. Prepare the way for the Lord. Clear a road for him. Prepare a way for God's coming king. So, Matthew himself, to make the point clear, stuck it right in the middle of the lesson as you heard. Prepare a way for the Lord. Clear a road for him. Prepare a way for God's coming king. And that's what you just saw in that movie clip. But John the Baptist says a lot more than that too. Oops, now I'm dropping other parts. I'm going to break this yet. Oh well. We got a big production budget. West Des Moines will pay for it. <laughs> ah! um, I could hear it already. The, the head of West Des Moines production said, No, I'm not. Yes, you will. Um, any rate, um, John the Baptist didn't just talk about shouting Hosanna. He talked about shouting it not only with your mouth, but with your lives. That means shout Hosanna, prepare the way of the Lord with how you act, how you treat people. How you live out God's great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do that and you are shouting Hosanna with your life. Now, as John the Baptist was doing that, it was very clear that most of the people around him in that desert were not ready, were not prepared. In fact, the way was rather cluttered in their lives. So they were going about preparing it. And that's why John the Baptist kept shouting, Repent! Repent! Prepare the way of the Lord! Now, this word repent is kind of a funny word in our culture. Not a real happy word. I mean, how many of us woke up this morning and said, I'm going to have me some bacon and eggs and some repentance. Yeah, that sounds like fun. With my Starbucks coffee, I'll do some repentant for fun. Nah, I don't think so. So I want to unpack this a little bit and do a little Bible study. So we're going to put three words up on the slides. And they are, let's go ahead and put those, Torah, Hata, and Shuv. Let's say that together. Torah, Hata, and Shuv. And I want to walk through. Let's start out, first of all, by telling the story. And that is that God's people were in trouble. They were in the middle of Egypt. And the, and the emperor of Egypt called Pharaoh has it in his mind to kill them all. So God raises up Moses and leads them out of Egypt and off into an amazing adventure on a journey, on a pathway to the promised land. Well, he didn't just want to move them from one piece of real estate to another. He also wanted to move their hearts. And so while they're on this pathway from Egypt to the promised land, he gives them also another pathway, and that's a new way to live. Not the way of slavery, not the way of despair, not the way of hopelessness, but the way of life and the way of love and the way of justice. And that word is called Torah. In English, we often use the word the law, God's law, or God's commands, or God's teaching. 
But a major definition is the path. In fact, that was such an important thing that the rabbis, the teachers of Israel, even a century before Jesus, referred to God's law or God's Torah as the way, the truth, and the life. And you can hear that pathway there. So in that way, literally, the Torah was an instructions for how to walk the path from slavery to freedom. Now, the next word is chatah. And, and you, you have to be careful when you say this or else you have to clean it up, you know, off your neighbor's back or something, you know, because it has a little ch in it. So say chatah, chatah. Yep, you got it. Chatah is a word we translate sin, but it's, I think it's more precisely called the being misaimed, like you take a rifle and you miss the target. Or another way is to, to literally get misoriented and to walk off the path and get lost. So... If Torah is, is the path itself, Hatah is to get off the path and get lost on our own path, which doesn't lead anywhere good. And that takes us to word number three, Shuv. Shuv is the word repentance. Well, often when we think of repentance, we think of feeling lousy about ourselves, beating ourselves up, yelling at ourselves, doing all kinds of bad things, and generally be feeling horrible. Well, Shuv has nothing to do with emotions. It's just simply about getting back on the path. So when someone says in the Bible to repent, all they're telling you is get back on the path of life. Now here's something really important. This is not the path to God. This is the path of God where God is already there. God didn't say to the Israelites, if you follow my pathway, then I will rescue you out of Egypt and be your God. If you follow my pathway, then I will give you my love. No, that's not how it went. God loved them first and rescued them first. And then as a gift, he gave them the pathway and said, I am here Follow me on this wonderful brand new path of life. And so that's what the crowd was doing. They were literally shooving, repenting, getting back on the path that God had given them all along. Because they wanted to be part of the Messiah's brand new kingdom where things would definitely be a whole lot better both on life on the outside but most importantly life on the inside. And now they were taking the first steps of repentance, confessing their sins and being baptized. I want to talk about this word confess, confession or confessing their sins. Again, one of those nasty feel-bad words. It literally means to get on the same page with God. That's literally what it means if you dig it up in the, in, in, in the original language. It means to get on the same page with God about who you are. But not only that, but about who His love is for you too. And then baptism back then was, was kind of like a way to renew yourself, to recommit yourself so they confessed their sins and then they recommitted themselves back to the path of life. Now, the story moves to two other groups of people, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. These two groups also joined Jesus. And if you were watching at the front of the movie clip, you saw these, these black robe people standing on scalp, scaffolding, looking like a bunch of vultures. Well, those were the Sadducees and Pharisees. And um, when John the Baptist saw them among the crowd, he just went completely ballistic. And the Bible records that he just let them have it. Let me just read this. This is wild. You brood of snakes, John exclaimed. Who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? Prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe because we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots from the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Have a nice day. Yeah, it's just like, blah! What's going on here? Well, let me describe who these two groups are. Group number one, the Sadducees. These are the temple priests, and they are also the thought police. 
If you know anything about Saudi Arabia or Iran's government, they have a special brand of clergy that run around making sure everybody behaves morally and religiously. And you can break certain moral and religious laws and get yourself into trouble. Israel had the same thing in the first century. And the Sadducees were the thought police. And they were also the, the, the temple priests, and, and they were the ones in charge of the sacrifices and all that. And this group was hated. Not only because they were basically the secret police, but also because they, they charged ridiculously high prices for the sacrifices, which means that when a poor person went to sacrifice something, they were out a ton of money. In fact, the priests were known for getting rich off of being the shepherds of Israel's people. So you can see it wasn't hard to understand why John went after them. But there's another group. And these are the Pharisees. Now, in the 21st century, we often think of the Pharisees as, as the bad guys. But back then, they were actually supposed to be the good guys. In fact, 100 years, 150 years before Jesus, they started a renewal movement against the Sadducees. And this renewal movement, instead of all, all being about paying people for sacrifices and, and, and thought police and all that, was actually about grace. It was a renewal movement about grace and discipleship, true discipleship, what it meant to be a true son of Israel, not just going through the motions. But something happened during those 150 years, and over time, the grace and the discipleship got replaced with religious and moral checklists. In fact, by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees believed that if they kept themselves religiously and morally pure, and they didn't associate with people who didn't, which was pretty well everybody else, which means they were kind of left to themselves, but if they kept themselves all pure and, 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 and went through the moral and religious checklist, then God would gladly reward them. And when the Messiah came, they'd have a place of honor in the kingdom of God. So basically, they were expecting that when the Messiah came, they were going to be his right-hand men with all the power and prestige that goes with it. Now, if we dare, let's see if we can do this one. There's another movie clip. And the production people saying, no, stop, don't. I must have sent a bad DVD or something. I apologize for that. But we'll give it another try. There's another scene from one of my favorite movies that probably shows what's in the Pharisees' heads of, of when the Messiah came and how they'd be so honored. Let's see about this movie clip. Now, I do not believe that the Pharisees imagined themselves looking like Chewy, Baca, or C-3PO. But that whole thing, I think that's what was in their heads, is that when the Messiah came, he'd come and there'd be this big old procession and horns blazing and the whole bit, and then they would be welcomed as heroes and honored because they were morally pure, they were religiously pure, and they had not associated with those who didn't. And there's just one problem. That's not how the Messiah showed up. There wasn't any pomp, there wasn't any glory, no blaze of trumpets, no processionals. Instead, Jesus showed up, born, set in a feed trough. His hometown was known for its poverty, its brothel, its violence, and very, very short life expectancies. And for a good part of his life, he and his followers were homeless. And he had this very nasty habit of hanging around with all the wrong people, the desperately poor, the prostitutes, and even worse, the collaborators with the Romans... That would be tax collectors. And you know, because of the Pharisees' attitude, there was no way they were going to have anything to do with this so-called Messiah. Jesus simply didn't fit their image of what a proper Messiah, what God's anointed king should be. And very, very quickly, the Pharisees became Jesus' enemies. In fact, they hated him so much 
that they got together with the Sadducees and the Roman occupation forces and they executed Jesus in a city down outside the city of Jerusalem. How could this have happened? How could the Pharisees who 150 years prior started this movement that emphasized God's grace in following the pathway of life, how could these people, the good guys, wind up being the folks who executed Jesus? Perhaps it was because they were so busy climbing the ladder of religion and morality that they completely missed the fact that God's chosen king, the Messiah, had come down to save his people. And because they were so busy at climbing the ladder of religious and moral purity, they began to expect the wrong thing. And so they missed him. Isaiah's prophecy had been fulfilled. The Messiah had come, and they missed it. So 2,000 years later, where are we in all this? If Christ came today, would we see him as the Messiah? Would we see him as God's chosen king? Or would he just offend us? Now, the Bible teaches that one day Christ will come again, and he will bring justice and judgment to restore the world to what God intended all along. And the Bible is also real clear that one day there will be a great judgment day, a great sorting out where we will see who stands with God and who doesn't. Now, I want to present to you just a what if. This isn't in the Bible, so I want to make sure you guys know that. But what if when the second coming happened, when Christ came again, what if he came back in a way that nobody expected? What if Jesus came back pretty much like he did the first time? And pretty much like he did the first time, he didn't look like a king at all. And what if just as in the first time, he started hanging around with all the wrong people, the desperately poor, the prostitutes, the messed up, the banged up, the beat up, the kicked out, the spit out, the folks who dug their own hole and the folks who got thrown into it. And what if he started making all the good and moral people upset at him once again? And what if that great judgment day, that day when God separates the sheep and the goats, happened really, really quietly, right under our noses, where people either join Jesus and his people, or they just kept hanging on to their stuff, their security, their status, their reputation, their moral uprightness, all because they just couldn't handle the upside-down king and his upside-down kingdom. And what if God let them do just that? God let them hang on to their fistfuls of nothingness. God let them be the kings and queens of their own second-rate kingdoms, what God calls hell. What if it happened that way? And where would we be in all that? Would we join Jesus in his upside-down kingdom with his motley crew of beat-up, kicked-out, messed-up, but forgiven, redeemed, and healed people? Or would we walk away because we just couldn't let go of our stuff, our need to climb the ladder of our own self-righteousness. No, I don't know how you'd answer that. But if you don't like your answer, I've got some really, really good news for you. You see, regardless of how you answered this, God is still hopelessly in love with you. 
whether you're one of those banged up people that Jesus loves to hang around with or you're one of those Pharisees who's all offended by him, God is madly in love with you and he's been madly in love with you all along. Makes no difference who you are. He still sees through all the masks and self-deception that we've been hiding behind. He sees through all the bad decisions we've made. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus has died for. To forgive us and set us free from the notion that we had to climb some kind of ladder to reach him. That we have to do something to get him to love us. This is what the Bible says. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And somewhere else it also says, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. While we were hostile to him, Christ died for us. While we were offended by him, Christ died for us. You see, not even our own self-righteousness and our moral uptightness can drive Jesus away. That means that God died even for all the ladder climbers like you and me. And for all the broken, banged up, messed up people like you and me. So I'm going to ask you again. Do you want life to get better? Especially on the inside where it really matters. Then come down off the ladder. Come down and meet God. Come down and meet God this Christmas season where He really is. Right in the middle of the mess. Right in the middle of all the broken places of our lives. Putting things back together as only He can. Come down and let God free you from all the things that are getting in the way of His love for you. Come down and let God return you back to the path of life. There's a wonderful scene in another one of my favorite movies. Everything comes in three, so we've got to have three movies. And this one is about freedom. It's about Moses leading Israel out of slavery in Egypt and into the journey, the path of freedom to the promised land. And for me, it's a perfect picture of what Jesus is up to and what he will complete when he comes again. See, the Bible says that for freedom, Christ has set us free. So let's, let's see what freedom looks like in this, this clip here. I don't know if you caught it, but in that clip, it isn't just the Israelites who walk out of slavery. It's the taskmasters and some high Egyptian officials. There are a whole lot of people freed in the Exodus. When Christ comes back, it'll be the biggest Exodus of all. We will be taken out of the slavery of this broken world. And whether it's the messes that have been made of our lives or the delusion of our own self-righteousness, the security we hold in our wealth, Whatever it is, we will be freed and we will be set on an eternal journey that gets better and better and better every, every day. And that's why the Bible says, even so, Lord Jesus, amen, come quickly, come soon, come quickly, free us, just like you did that first time. Come quickly and lead us into freedom. Amen.